Attention everyone, this is an emergency broadcast. The unpleasant noise you are about to hear coming from your radio is not a mistake. Please do not turn off your radio, but turn up the volume on your receiver as high as it can go so that you can make the sound we broadcast as loud as possible. The monsters will now start attacking Tokyo. You may wish to deny it, but your eyes tell you it's true. Sound. I'll turn up the sound so you can hear the monsters dueling to the death. Welcome to episode 147 of the Kaiju Cast, a bi-monthly podcast 100% dedicated to Godzilla and all of his rubber-suited foes. My name is Kyle, and this is the third episode for July 2015, and the Daikaiju discussion episode for Pulgasari, a movie that I can't wait to talk about with these fine people. Speaking of these fine people, who's here with me in the studio? We have Brian Cook. Hey, what's up? And Rachel is here as well. Hi there. And, of course, we've got Mr. Martin Favre joining hey. us. How's it going, folks? Yeah, so we are going to be watching this uh, Korean film, North Korean film. That's about all I'm going to say right now. Yes. We are going to go ahead and play a little bit of music. Uh, well, actually, we can't say right now, of the three people who are in front of me, none of them have actually seen this film before. <laughs> you saying it's a North Korean film just doubled my knowledge on this film. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> All right, so what we're going to do is we're actually going to mix things up here a little bit, but you'll be none the wiser, hopefully. Uh, We're going to start things off with War God Effigy and Falcon by Akira Ifukube from Wrath of Daimajin. And then we're going to get into another song, and then we'll be back with our discussion.
Okay, so we started things off with War God Effigy and Falcon by Akira Ifukube, which is from Wrath of Daimajin, which is my favorite of the trilogy. And uh, the reason I brought that up is because this movie has been likened to Daimajin several times, especially by people in the homework. So the next song we played was actually called Harakiri Duel, and that was uh, by Masaki Kobayashi, I guess. I'm not exactly sure, but I, I went for, you know, went to find some soundtrack stuff, and there's, of course, nothing available for this film. Uh, but, like I said, that was from, I think this was used in Polgasari, which brings us to our Daikaiju discussion, which is, once again, class, it's time for our Daikaiju discussion. Every month, the Kaiju cast takes a look at one film from the giant monster landscape and tasks the listeners with submitting their thoughts, questions, and reviews for the following discussion episode. Thanks to an online tool, I've randomly, somewhat, assigned... One movie to each month, ensuring that this podcast will keep going for at least, you know, another year or so. This is where I normally say, this month our movie is Polgasari, but uh, I was so busy getting ready for G-Fest and then so busy with other stuff that I didn't get as much of a chance to research this as I was going to hope. So, uh, take it away, Brian Cook. So, this month, we are looking at the 1985 North Korean film Polgasari. This film was directed by Shin Sang-ok, an award-winning and prolific South Korean filmmaker who, in 1978, was kidnapped, along with his former wife, famous actress Che Eun-hee, by North Korean intelligence officers in Hong Kong under orders from Kim Jong-il. In North Korea, the two were ordered to make high-quality propaganda films meant to revitalize the North Korean film industry. Pulgasari was the final film Shin Sang-ok directed in North Korea before he and his former wife escaped to the United States in 1986. This film also features the unwitting participation of Teriyoshi Nakano and the special effects crew from Toho Studios fresh off their work on The Return of Godzilla 
aka Godzilla 1985. This includes Godzilla actor Kenpachiro Satsuma as Polgasari. Satsuma also wrote the book Godzilla Goes to North Korea about the experience, but that has not been translated into English yet. ルガサリ伝説の大怪獣誰も見ることのできなかった怪獣映画の最高傑作が35ミリニュープリント完全版でついに日本上陸全世界の映画ファンが夢にまで見た伝説的見せ場の数々その全貌が明らかになる時が来
they it was their career was in a bit of a low spot in their relationship. They were married and they had broken up and uh they still had a film studio and they were lured away under the guise of they were trying to trick Che into funding her acting school. Okay. And it was really North Korean agents. Uh-huh. And they took her to North Korea and then Shin actually went to North Korea looking for her and they found him, grabbed him, took him to North Korea and he was in labor camps. While she was just basically a prisoner who had dealings with Kim Jong-il. So I will say, uh, sorry to interrupt your initial thoughts, Martin, but okay. I will say just be, we're going to try and keep it to the, the formula of the Daikaiju yeah. discussions. But when a tangent comes up, I just want to go ahead and chase it. Um, I, so what I wanted to say was at the very beginning of the film when they're being treated, uh, in the prison, mm-hmm. right? So they're, the, I don't even know how to say this. The grandfather character, the, the, the uncle, yeah, the uncle yeah. is not eating or he's, uh, they won't feed him until the other guys are, you know, on mm-hmm. a hunger strike because of that. That's totally reminded me of the beginning of the book because I did start to listen yeah. to the audiobook version of this and the whole thing with the hunger strike and mm-hmm. like, oh, you know, who are you? Why are you so important? And it's, yeah. uh, it's hard to explain because I don't want to ruin the book for anybody, but um, I, of course, because I haven't finished reading it either, but uh, I'm sure there are parallels to Shin's life mm-hmm. and what they ended up putting in this movie. That and just in general, talking about North Korea, mm-hmm. I mean, how they treat their prisoners um, is that there's so many parallels to that in this film and just to North Korean culture. Um, and this is stuff that's going on currently. Let me remind people that this is actually happening in North Korea right now. It's not like we're talking about long ago in the past, like World War II in the forties. Mm-hmm. No, right now people are being treated this way in li- labor camps and it's just beyond fascinating and horrendous at the same time. But yeah. Brian and I have studied a ton of the interesting history about North Korea and Kim Jong-il and we really (laughs) did. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I'm in the middle of the commission of inquiry report on human rights violations in North Korea. And it's intertwined with tons of testimony that they've taken from defectors from North Korea. And this is something that was written last year. Um, And it's um, really crazy, but, um, but it is stuff that is just, it's mind blowing all of the stuff that happened mm-hmm. that just led up to the making of this film is just crazy. And we are talking 1985 here, which is also incredibly recent. Um, yeah, Martin, for when this was made, you, but you commented on the film stock when we first started. Yeah, it going. looked like a 1965 film. Yeah, that's yeah. what they have in North Korea. Oh, yeah, because, that's yeah. their yeah. technology. Well, yeah, yeah there was. I'm like everything's still spinning in my head to be honest with with all the new information and stuff like that. But yeah, but that's, that's actually, that is absolutely correct. North Korea is usually about 20 or 30 years behind everybody else. I mean, in some ways they're 50 years behind everyone. Right. At least I can honestly say, I don't think I've ever seen another North Korean movie. I think Paul Gasari is the only one I've ever seen. I hadn't seen any until this experience, until reading the book. Okay. Um, and then I haven't actually watched a full one other than Pogosari, but I've definitely mm-hmm. tracked down bits and pieces just to see how crazy things got. Because yeah. Kim, Kim Jong-il literally directs movies before he goes into, like, state service. Mm. 
So he was very tied into the film industry. And so you have seen other Korean, North Korean films now or no? Bits and pieces. Bits and I've pieces. never seen a full one. But yeah, because I mean, samples. if you think about all the movies that we've seen here, Yungari, the, the host. Uh, oh, that's South Korean. Uh, yeah, I know. Yeah. I was, yeah, that's where I was going with that. Is oh, that yeah. Those are all from South Korea, not <laughs> gotcha. from North Korea. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't. I mean, I don't even know where to look if I wanted to see North Korean cinema. Well, who knows if those even make it out because I think they are probably mostly Mm -hmm. government funded propaganda Mm -hmm. type of films, you know, believe in the communist North Korean. I I will say just on a very personal level, like while I think it's very easy for uh, I'm just going to say a country like America to villainize another country that they perceive to be the enemy for for one reason or a myriad of reasons. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that North Korea isn't, you know, on our our list of, you know, of top <laughs> countries to to watch out for. Uh, but I'm just saying I think it's very easy and uh, for one country's propaganda to fuel another country's propaganda against that country. And mm-hmm. so anytime I start hearing of uh, – like there are news reports online talking about what the North Korean government is telling their citizens mm-hmm. about America. And that's the kind of thing like when I watch that, I'm like, well, of course I watch that and I see it. And I'm like, that puts me up in arms because that's that's wrong. That's not how we live and so forth. But then I, I start to wonder, like, how much of this is just the the propaganda bouncing board yeah. that, you know, just kind of hits mm-hmm. us back. And so <laughs> I, I, I'm going to be during the whole time. I'm not going to speak to anything like that. I don't actually know about. So I don't, I don't know. <laughs> there, there are still concentration camps. That's what I'm hoping you guys with your information can, yeah. you know, help me out with. So if they still have mm-hmm. labor camps, there we go. Ding. We got yeah. information on North Korea, but that, they yeah. do, yeah. I just don't really, I don't know much mm-hmm. at all about North Korea and it's such right. a weird in this day and age. It's so weird that we don't know more. Well, it's so it's we an isolationist country. Yeah, it, it is. It is amazing that we only get these little tiny articles occasionally about mm. when they talk about, oh, they're creating missiles and they're trying to fire them at Japan. That's the main articles you see on CNN and you don't really dive into much of what is actually going on. Um, but the the interesting thing to bring back to what Martin was talking about as far as um mostly what they make is propaganda films that don't really, you know, they don't get out to the rest of the world. Right. And that is the case. Um, but the um the reason, you know, part of their interest something that's interesting about when they're making these propaganda films is everybody in the country is required to watch them. They all have movie theaters in their areas that they all have to go and watch them. And then afterwards, you're required to talk about um, how it showed praise to the Workers' Party and how it was revolutionary. So and if you don't say yeah. the proper things, you can get sent to a labor camp or a version of that. Um, there's different types of prison camps and labor camps mm-hmm. that you can go to. But if you say, um, even something, um, wrong against, you know, that's anti workers party, which everybody's being watched constantly. There is like a real big brother thing going on there with the Imanban. But, um, I can keep going on and on. But, but basically, <laughs> but the interesting thing is, um, the, is that yeah? It, it's as serious as you you can get. There's still executions happening regularly, mm-hmm. um, but it all 
is so bizarre to me that Kim Jong-il is so obsessed with movies and making propaganda films and that's how they can continue to keep everything going in that country with all, everybody being brainwashed and going along with it. Um, a big part is the films. And so when they create things like Pulgasari is not a straightforward propaganda film, um, but it's but <laughs> it's but, just slightly just off yeah. straightforward. Yeah, yeah. Um, slightly but, off it. Yeah, and, and they don't have any. Ex- they don't have any films from any other. I mean, other than some Soviet films, they never right. got films from anywhere else in the world. So they've never seen a Godzilla movie. They've never seen a kaiju film. You mean this the, is the first citizens thing. had right, never the people there in North Korea. But I'm sure Kim Jong Il had right. Yes. Oh, yeah. He, he, had, yeah, he had access in a, in a place yeah. of power. I'm sure you can get access to that kind of stuff. Yeah, he would have his embassies around the world steal films, make bootlegs, and send them back to him. <laughs> and he might have the largest one of the largest film archives in the world just because he stole all these movies from might have world. had. Might have, have had, had. Yeah, he's, he died he's in no 2011. Yeah. yeah. Well, so now Kim Jong Un has it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I guess so. Yeah, he's not as obsessed as, with movies as Kim Jong Il was. Yeah, he likes basketball and amusement parks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it, it's it's all very fascinating. <laughs> I don't know. So yeah, people watching Pulgasari uh, had to attend basically a kind of class to say you know what they liked about the movie and how how the characters were good for the party and how they had you know good workers party ideas and all that stuff there are a lot of elements in there such as the having everybody having to donate the like farming tools and Mm -hmm. pots and pans and all that to pitch in um to fight the enemy that's a huge thing that they do constantly in north korea let's actually kind of expand upon that right now Mm -hmm. so the the general (laughs) the basic plot behind polgasari is that there's an oppressive monarchy and the people are revolting and in mm-hmm. order to do to take over they need the help of sort of like the people's hero mm-hmm. yeah. in a monster named Polgasari who i don't know i don't know if i can have any sort of like uh, i if, well i first off i have no political background at all i'm not I'm not a political kind of guy but the uh from what i would understand is that the fact that he eats iron and has the ability to eat weapons and is impervious to weapons should have some sort of social commentary behind it. But the, mm. the general, the general gist of it that I got was that, uh, that the people shall rise up against the monarchy to create the people's republic. Well, unless but, it gets too, too out of hand and then yeah. the people, but it, then it's up to the people to take itself down, I guess. I don't know. That's sort of what I was getting from it. And it's one person decides that the Pugilsari is the one that has to come out and save everyone. So it's not even like the village or the countryside or everyone comes together and they all say, we need to do it. One person makes a decision that's supposed to be the good for all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't seem very that's socialist big- communist to me, but. I mean, it's as far very as their North message, Korean, but yeah, yeah, it's North Korea. And cause they're, they're really not communist. They're, and they call themselves the democratic people's Republic of North Korea. So right, Korea. Yeah. Yeah. they're, yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think mm-hmm. of that acronym. I've seen it before. DPRK. DPRK. Yeah. 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 All right. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> 
the, these guys, these two have just been like <laughs> reading books like crazy. Yeah. They've yeah. been living for this moment for what twenty seven days. <laughs> no, it's been, it's been, it's been, been studying for the past three months, right? We've yeah. been talking about this. What yeah. was funny actually was how have I missed that? How we got into this? It's been all off air stuff. It it actually started with I heard a podcast on um, NPR. I only this, heard a yeah, small part American of it. Life, yeah. yeah, this American Life. Um, on the way to the grocery store and I heard it about like just some actor and director that got kidnapped in North Korea and they were making a film and I'm like, and I had no clue what they were talking about. I only heard such a small part of it, mm-hmm. but I went home after I got groceries and I said to Brian, I was like, I heard this really interesting part of, it. I think it was this American life. So we should download that. I think it's a, a good one because we listen to that regularly anyways. And so we downloaded it and um, well, I found got, out. Yeah, I had already you had recognized yeah. it. Yeah. By the, when she mentioned it to me, I listened to the episode and was like, oh, I downloaded this book recently. I have the book and oh, the yeah, audio yeah, book yeah. Yeah. Like, ready to go. Like I had gotten it beforehand. And then once I heard that episode, I was like, oh, it's a section from the book. And it, it made me really want to read the book, yeah. even though I'd already really wanted to read it. So, so yeah. we, yeah, so we ended up reading, um, we read the whole book and we didn't even realize most of the book is not about Polgasari. It just right. is about the history yeah. of Shin and Che and how they ended up getting to North Korea and getting kidnapped and, yeah. and, um, their escape attempts and whatnot. And it's really towards the end of the book that they touch upon that they were making Polgasari. And we, had talked about we wanted to do a bunch of research for Polgasari before the episode came up yeah. because we thought it'd be really fascinating. And we didn't know for a long time until we got up to that part there. Oh my gosh, we're doing research for Polgasari. We didn't <laughs> yeah. make the connection that that's what we're listening to yeah. right now. We just thought we found this interesting thing about North Korea that we just both were fascinated by. Yeah. And so it was really exciting once we realized, oh man, we're already really prepared and <laughs> the episode's in July. Perfect. And so we got stoked and we just went down that crazy rabbit yeah. hole as we tend to do on most topics where we just well, share all of glad. our information and download <laughs> every podcast we can on the topic <laughs> and just read like crazy about it. But. So initial thoughts... Martin, you're, there were, your mind was blown. Uh, initial thoughts. Well, just with all the backstory and all this other stuff, but, um, <laughs> backstory, you know, once I, I learned it was a North Korean film, I was actually trying to look for a lot of propaganda stuff as it went through and all that. But, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's not a good film. It's not, a, <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a good film, but I, I definitely want to get more into certain things when we talk about what we liked and what we didn't like on that. So I don't want to get yeah. too far down okay. in that. Right on. Initial thoughts, Brian, Rachel. Um, I was very fascinated by all of the pieces I can, um, pull from it that are actual human rights violations in North Korea. <laughs> um, that, the amount of stuff that they actually show that are things that they usually try to hide in yeah. North Korea. It's usually stuff that they don't want to reflect. They, um, in fact, the, like, for example, the famine in North Korea that happened in the nineties, there was this horrendous famine where literally millions of people died. Um, and it had to do with, um, briefly, I'll try to explain that they have, because it's a communist type regime, 
um, they had a distribution system uh, for food and everybody had rations and, and nobody was able to grow their own food. Everybody had a certain amount that like even farmers, they had to give it all to the military. They didn't get to keep a portion for themselves. They had to rely on this public distribution system. And um, they basically planned it poorly. And they also changed all of the agriculture where they changed everything to be chemical based or electricity based and fertilizer based versus the regular farming they were doing. And it totally messed up all of their agriculture. It ruined a bunch of soil, ruined everything. And then on top of that, in the middle of the 90s, they had these horrible floods. And so it created this awful famine where people were just starving to death all over the country, except really Pyongyang, where the elite live because it's a class-based system. And that's, that's the capital in case. Yeah. Um, so they ended up, um, so tons of people, because they're starving to death, they're going out and they're eating bark, they're eating grass, they're eating anything they can find. Uh, yeah. And so in this film, they have things like that where they are, that's, they're scraping the bark off the trees and they're just they're eating random stuff, cooking grass in a pot with water and mm -hmm. just that's all they can do. And, um, and that was, that was a huge part of North Korean history. And we're talking history in the nineties, mid nineties. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. that idea, you know, yeah. Later people had to really do that. So yeah. So I thought this I was found a big that movie, fascinating. So yeah. See that in this movie, mm -hmm. you know, who knows? but if Kim Jong-il or Kim Jong-un, the current leader are talking about history, they don't refer to it as the famine. They also don't, will not bring up the fact that it was the public distribution system that really failed that and their agriculture techniques that failed. And that's what created the famine. What they'll talk about is the floods, but really that was, not till in 95 or 96, but the famine started in like 92. And so, um, but of course they don't want to point the fingers at themselves and the government. They want to say, Oh, it's just the floods, but that's not the case. But, um, but it was, yeah, just shocking that Kim Jong-il would allow this film to be made where it's showing stuff like that's related to the famine. Like, although I guess you wouldn't know that that's what's going the on. was in the 90s, yeah. right? Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Actually, yeah. I didn't think about it that. It, yeah. it predates it. Okay. But it so prepared the I, But it must have. Yeah. And really, um, there they, was they starvation had, happening before yeah, the 90s. Yeah, they had yeah. starvation it's for a several long Several times, time. yeah. yeah. But the major famine was in the 90s. But okay. I guess I didn't think about that, the timing of it. Um so, but either way, it was shocking to but see that they're the, showing these things. But who are the people that are doing that? Like, it, it's the people that you're rooting for. So I think they're like, yeah. hey, these are what the good guys do, and you're going to mm -hmm. make it through, and you're going to win over the evil, oppressive empire mm -hmm. down the road someday. So, you know, this is what we do collectively as a people to survive. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Yeah. Yeah, my, my uh, reaction to it was just that, it wasn't a good movie, like from a movie standpoint, but knowing the backstory, I almost found it subversive. Like the director put in all these things about imprisonment and the way the uncle is imprisoned is very similar to what happened to him. And you could even go so far as to say that Pulgasari himself is the embodiment of Kim Sung-il, who is mm -hmm. Kim Jong-il's father, uh, who is a military leader that put everything in place that is there today. Mm. And he got Pulgasari goes out of control and the people have to sacrifice to bring him down. Is that a subversive message that Shin Sangok was sticking in there? Like this is your great leader and he's capable of turning on you people and, you know, eating your tools that you need to survive after he's defeated the enemy. It's interesting what you could read the movie in that way, I think. So 
Absolutely. They even say that um, your our savior has become our enemy. Exactly. And they That's definitely really refer to yeah. the um, both, you know, all three leaders that have been in power um, as their their saviors. And mm-hmm. they always praise them for everything that they've given, even though they're constantly putting them in these horrible situations. But they still are like, oh, he's the best and mm-hmm. he gives us everything. And and how interesting to show all the emotional state of everybody yeah that yeah. it when you look at propaganda films in general the that is very common for some of the north korean stuff that i've read about is they all are very emotional people is what they, yeah is the, yeah, the yeah and the, the funerals for kim sung il and kim jong il feature just people falling over themselves including crying like the, the news anchors yeah and if you yeah. that footage has been because that was yeah. their god yes yeah. that was they, that was god to them as exactly. well as yeah. the leader of the country that's exactly. Exactly. that's the way they believed yeah but yeah, and and they're just like Kim Jong Il, and so when you see it, like <laughs> the in the ghosts. movie, you're like, oh, yeah, that's, that's exactly how they, how they sound. Like they're like, on wow, the news, they, that's the news totally anchor, how it is. The news anchor on the news says, like, you've left us, Kim Jong Il. Why yeah. is this happening? That's the that would be like Tom Brokaw saying, "Why did you die, JFK? Why did you do this to us?" Wow. Like to put it in American, not that Tom Brokaw right, did right, the, right. was alive. <laughs> well, not alive, but. He wasn't doing news back then. You know what I mean? But it's Let's weird. Let's not focus on the wrong thing. Here. Right. Exactly. It's weird how emotional a news anchor would be. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's such a different w- way to think about your leaders. It's frightening to, to us, in my opinion. Yeah. You know? Well, to- mm-hmm. I, I don't want to come off as a, as a North Korean defender. Cause that's not what I'm doing by saying this, but like, uh, cultural differences, do dictate different behavior sets mm. for for different oh, you know oh, yeah. different cultures. So for just for example, the like the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Yeah. yeah. Oh my mm-hmm. god. I knew I was about to say Israel and then I was like, I can say Jerusalem, right? So yeah, the Wailing Wall. Just that, you don't have that here. We don't have a wall where yeah. people go up and yell you know and, and cry in front of. Uh another example, this is one that I learned of recently, is that in Japan when somebody screws up real, real bad in a government or <laughs> in the government or uh, in a business, like, and they've screwed up really bad, they will get on camera for a press conference and scream and plead and, and cry. like oh, turn really? it wow. up to 27 yeah. as to how, like, I'm so sorry. You know, I, we actually saw some of that when we were over there. Wow. And it's just, amazing what kind of cultural differences can show mm-hmm. up again not trying to defend korea but like oh, yeah. that's the kind of thing yeah. yes i agree with you guys on that but at the same time like who like i would never judge somebody for doing that like or say oh, no, yeah. you know yeah like, oh absolutely yeah i, it's I am actually how curious how how driven those people specifically saying like the newscaster uh, was like, if they were like, oh, you need to do this or you're going to get killed. <laughs> you know, right. we oh, need absolutely. You that's as a, how it is. As yeah. a public figure on TV <laughs> yeah. to show this specific emotion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and they actually, I don't know. Go ahead. We read that what, like one in how many people is like a government spy basically in, in our company right now, like the four of us in this room, there could be one person that will report everything to the government and say like, Oh, Martin was saying oh, well, that yeah. the government's yeah. bad. So that you know. sounds completely even, r- ridiculous comrade. Yeah. I wouldn't say that we, <laughs> right. anybody would do that. Yeah. It's, 
you can't even trust your family members yeah. um, to a point because anybody will turn anyone in just because to protect themselves um, in in that country, and that's just how the culture's been set up I, because of the the amount of fear and. Yeah. Reading these books yeah. like we have, I have so much sympathy and compassion for North Korean people mm-hmm. who are there mm-hmm. and and have to deal with life this way. And they don't know what life is like in the rest of the world. And we've read all these stories of people who find like American movies. They'll find like friends and they'll be mm-hmm. like, oh, people have cars and they they have apartments. It's not because they think they can move wherever they want to. Yeah, Propaganda and, yeah. says that yeah. the rest of the world is like a Mad Max style wasteland where everyone preys on each other. And then yeah. they see these movies and they're like, oh, wow, that's really out there. And we read a story from The Guardian about a woman who watched Titanic and was like, this takes place in the past and it's better than what we have right now in North Korea. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's that's that breaks my heart. It mm. really does. Interesting. Uh, all right. Well, uh, I guess my initial thoughts are that I've, this, I, this is the second time I've seen this film. When I first got into the kaiju genre, I like was, and I was at that stage that the, you know, the new relationship stage where I was like, I'm going to devour everything I see. Uh, I thought I had watched this. I thought that I had actually grabbed it and watched it and I must have only watched the beginning or watched it and then didn't pay attention to it. Cause I, I had no idea how this movie played out until I saw it, I think two years ago. And, uh, I, I actually, it is a terrible movie on, in some levels. Uh, but I think it actually is, it, it does strike some chords with me that I really like. I mean, sure, you know, the People's Republic of Kyle will live on, but the, uh, no, the real stuff that I like is I like the monster design and I like, you know, oh, yeah. there are things I like about it. So Did it remind you of Godzilla 85 at all. A little bit. With the yeah. big eyes and stuff. Well, uh, there's a theory that we'll bring up in a second. I'm hoping to talk to you, maybe pick your brain about a couple oh. things. Uh, the other thing I was going to say in my just initial reaction was, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of like Kung Fu films as well. Not nearly to the level I am of as Kaiju, (laughs) but uh, you know, the fact that this is essentially a Kung Fu and a Kaiju film mixed together and put into a a period drama. uh, That's not going to be a deterrent for me. You know, I'm, I'm into that. (laughs) So uh, those were my initial thoughts. And, and I do, like I said, I have an appreciation for this movie on, on a couple different levels. So let's, uh, what do we want to do first? Positive or negative? Do we want to go with the terrible or do we want to go with the good stuff? With the good stuff. Yeah. Okay. Let's go with the good stuff. Martin, what was some of the, what were some of the aspects of this film that worked for you? So I agree. The, so the, uh, the mature suits I thought were really <laughs> yeah, yeah. good. Yeah. So like the last two or three phases, I think of Pugilsari were really good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they, you know, uh, when they got to the, uh, general's headquarters and then the kingdom and those buildings, those were really well done. And the way they you know, tore those things up, destroyed yeah. them and did all that. Those were top notch. I have to say that was actually some of the best kaiju destruction exterior buildings. Really? That okay. was really good. All they right. were, they were just built and, they were shot in a really neat way. They weren't overly lit, which most of the movie is super dark and there's really yeah. hard to see. But yeah. when they got to that, it was really dark and ominous, but you could see all the right stuff. Like it was, it, it, yeah. I was just, wow, that, that was good. Well, that would be because 
Teriyoshi Nakano, mm-hmm. one of the special effects directors from the Godzilla series, mm-hmm. from the 70s Godzilla films, in addition to Kenpachiro Satsuma, who played Godzilla in the Heisei era, and, you know, Gigan in, you know, the Showa era. And, and you said Marshawn the yeah, dwarf. Yeah, man Marshawn, yeah. who played Minya, was maybe Pulgasari. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. so they brought in... They brought people over from Japan to work on this film. Yeah, they were. They went to China thinking they were going to do a children's film. Really? And then they walked off the plane and realized they were in Pyongyang and they had military supervision the entire time. And wow. I think this, I think the production on the Toho side was three months and none of those people could contact the outside world. They couldn't call Japan and say, this is where I'm at right now. Holy, Holy crap. crap. <laughs> Holy the, crap. The other thing of note for why some of that stuff looks so good is that um a big part of um Kim Jong il's uh I guess producer direction job. producer. Yeah, because he's job. kind of de facto producer yeah, of these um, movies. Is that he when when Shin Song Uk, the director would ask for, he's like, I really want to blow up a train in this movie I'm making. Kim Jong-il wouldn't say, okay, here's the stuff to make to do a model train. No, he'd get him a real train to blow up. They'd go with, blow up a real they'd train. They'd go blow up a train, train tracks. So we and need so to throw all of the money, boulders down on these yeah. people. Yeah. I'll, I'll take care of it. Exactly, yeah. Oh, so, wow. so things like that. Hey, Kim Jong-il would be like, okay, whatever you need. And they would use all of this, the country's resources to be just making movies rather than feeding their people. Did you say resources <laughs> so, or race horses? Because there was a spot in there where I was like, that's oh, a real horse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's some rough animal stuff yeah. in this film. Yeah. yeah. It was a little yeah. tough. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. um, but yeah, I agree with you. Those effects were fantastic. And I mean, yeah, it's Toho. <laughs> So yeah. let's do it. That's responsible. <laughs> yeah. Toho guys. That's so. what those guys can do in three months with guns pointed at them and yeah. no contact in <laughs> and the outside all world. the money they need to <laughs> really do it. But what? Um, did it say how many people were on the, on the movie? The, the Toho crew? Yeah. I, I don't know for sure. I only know okay. those three names. Gotcha. Um, but I'm, I'm assuming it, I've heard it was the Godzilla 85 crew. I heard they basically end Godzilla 85 and they're like, Oh, we got this other gig lined up and then they go and do Pulgasari. So. Okay, so when I was at Big Wow Comics Fest uh, last year, and they had Kenji Patira Satsuma as one of the guests, he started telling the story at the panel about Pulgasari, and I totally thought it was going to be, oh, let me tell you something that you've never heard before. But unfortunately, with you know the level of kaiju nerdery that yeah. we occupy, like when someone says, oh, I've got a story you've never heard before, the chances of you having heard that story are actually pretty good. Uh, unless it's just somebody who's never done interviews. So unfortunately, we had heard that kind of stuff, but I was really hoping that he was going to get into the details because I would love to know, maybe from that book someday, if Satsuma has detailed his exact, like, here's what went down. If he yeah. wrote a whole mm-hmm. book about it, I would love I to really want to yes. know what that book says now. Absolutely. I, I mean, we, me and Rachel always talk about how we wish we knew Japanese, and that's been something I knew since I was something I've thought since I was a little kid. But yeah. man, when yeah. I figured out he wrote this book, I was like, oh man, that's a huge re- reason to learn Japanese is to read that mm-hmm. book. So, yeah, uh, I, I would love to read that. Yeah. Okay, so Rachel, what about you? The high points of this film was it the production and the and the the miniatures and the destruction there and the when he well, got to the capital 
Well, yes, that was, that was fantastic. Um, and, uh, of course, I love the baby versions of <laughs> <laughs> No, I thought that was so wonderful how he, like, creates the little creature and then he starts to move when he looks like a little toy. It's like what, something I've always wanted my toys to do. <laughs> and then, and then as, you know, and he gets bigger and bigger, he looks real wonky when he's about, I don't know, um, little child version. size. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but he's got real very crossed eyes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like, I mean, how everybody looks when they're in junior high school. <laughs> it's not a good look for anybody. When There's Pogasari always like had one braces okay on person. And yeah. Still had yeah. his baby fat. Yeah. Real yeah. awkward. Yeah. 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 So, but then, um, yeah. I, but I also think as, as, as an adult, I thought the suit looked awesome. I really liked the design. I thought it was great. So, yeah. Yeah. Mr. Cook, what yeah. about you, man? Give us, give us your uh, positive takeaways from this film. That suit was awesome. And I mean, I, it, I could tell it was Satsuma inside the suit. Maybe it's because I already knew that beforehand, but his gesturing and all that kind of stuff, it all had that kind of flow of his, his, his acting work, his suit acting work. Yeah. Satsuma's suit acting is difficult to portray on an audio port podcast, but, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot of keeping your arms in close mm-hmm. and, uh, like you're expecting somebody to throw something at you. And then reaching out with a claw motion to like attack your enemies. Yeah. That's sort of like how I would think of Satsuma in a monster suit, not just, you know, Godzilla, but obviously Polgasari as yeah, well. Yeah, I, yeah. Yeah. I felt I could totally see, see him in there. So, and, and as far as I'm concerned, I do view the film in terms of subversive. I think that mm-hmm. that's a huge positive for me is I think Shin Sang-ok was completely like rubbing, rubbing one in Kim Jong-il's face to be like, oh, it's this monster movie like he ordered me to do. And really it's a metaphor for your system sucks and I'm going to make fun of it. And so I got to know, do you, uh, does anybody here think that he got away with that in terms of being able to show what he really wanted or like, cause this was, you said this was like one of his last films this he made, his, right? Yeah, this is his, his film. final one. He kept... He made a lot of films for Kim Jong-il yeah. and, and at first they're very conservative in terms of what Kim Jong-il wants and we're not going to deviate. And then as things went on, he got more freedom and more freedom. So gotcha. by this time, I really think that the leash was off. And also, uh, this is a time where Kim Jong-il was no longer focused on movie making because his role in government had become so oh, large. Okay. Uh, and, he had to basically put that stuff on the back burner to actually do, cause he was also head of the intelligence community that does the kidnappings. Um, <laughs> he was doing a lot of things and he was, in I'm the, with the intelligence community, yeah. you know, we're the ones that do all the kidnappings. Well, the <laughs> hilarious thing about that is before he did the intelligence stuff, it was a normal like intelligence gathering community. Uh-huh. And then when he takes charge, it all becomes James Bond stuff of like kidnapping people and exploding palaces. And it's basically a little boy who's watched James Bond being like, I know how to do spy stuff. And he did horrible things. Oh, wow. And, and all these kidnappings and, and, and bombings and stuff. And it's really like crazily irresponsible. And I forget. It's terrifying to think that somebody. Not that long ago, thought basically like movie movies were real, like Galaxy Quest style, where they're, oh God, they're like, yeah. this is historical documents, you yeah. know, where he thinks, no, this is how you do things in other countries. Mm. 
And the fact that he thinks, oh, okay, so if we want to take over that country, we just need to go in with spies, blow some things up, have, you know, this crazy team of scuba divers and, you know, and, and make just crazy demands. Some, yeah. And yeah. <laughs> do all these bizarre things. It's terrifying to think that someone thinks that that's how the world works. I need a sports car that will turn into a submarine now. Yeah. 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 Oh, it's crazy. Gosh. All right. Well, I would say that my takeaways from. Uh, my positive reactions to this film are that, I mean, it's, yeah, the, the suit definitely is the clear winner, but the fact that, you know, it is a, it is a period drama. And actually I love the fact that it's a propaganda film that is somewhat subversive to the, to the, uh, the establishment that was ordering that film be made. So (laughs) that's pretty cool, actually, to be perfectly honest. Uh, now as far as the negative stuff goes, uh, I don't know how I'm going to even pinpoint one or two particular things. There's a lot, lot going on in this film that pretty clear. Some people didn't know what they were doing. You could almost draw a line around that Toho stuff and say, that's really the only salvageable like content from the film yeah. stuff. Like mm-hmm. everything else does. I think somebody mentioned it made it look like you're watching a, a Korean soap opera. Yeah, and like, <laughs> yeah, I can see that for sure. I would even go so far as to say it, it's almost like you're watching a play because you've got very three, uh, three walled sets essentially. Mm, you know? For sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what are your negativos for this film, Martin? I don't know why I said that word, but I'll just leave it <laughs> in for that. That's all right. So. I'll, I'll take it. Uh, so it's hard to be too negative on this thing, considering all the stuff that I've yeah. learned about what they had to go through, <laughs> you know, with the kidnapping and the gulag and the, you know, so, um, they're probably doing about as best as they could considering, you know, all the things that were happening in there. I mean, I can definitely nitpick. There was, uh, the like story wise, there was, <laughs> Uh, it just, it's one of those where, all right. So the Pugulsari is like going along and they're, the army's freaking out and they're like, Oh, what are we going to do? Ah, da, da. We have a plan. Let's put it in a box and we're going to burn it. Yeah. All right. And then they do that. And then it's like, Oh my God, we did it. Yeah. Attack the army. No, he got out. Scramble. Yeah. Now we're, <laughs> and now somehow we've covered a large distance of ground and in, in pretty much no time and we're feasting. And then we're like, Hey, you know what? Plan B could be dig a big pit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Get All right. Let's get on that really quick because I hear he's on the outskirts coming really quick. Hey, we got this giant pit. That they worked have out. a massive pole Huge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's called 10,000 Koreans and chains. <laughs> yeah. Man. And, uh, I don't, I don't know. It was really, you know, between the army who continued to think that they were going to outthink this thing or out strategize it and be able to figure out something to do it. Uh, but then the people that were just like, march forward, people that don't know how to fight will simply follow him into, oh, now he's in a giant pit. Yeah. <laughs> oh, now he's in a giant box. It's on fire. You know, no, at no point in time did anyone go, hey, can we like figure out a, a backup in case they like stall Pulgasari <laughs> for a little while? Cause you know, we're, we're rakers. <laughs> true, true. Shall we farm him? Yeah, that's right. If that guy was a potato, I'd be able to do this, but <laughs> you got to get him out of the ground somehow. Cut your arm. All right. What about you, Rachel? Give me something that you really don't like about this film. What irks you about its production, perhaps? The 
the rear view was it the rear the screen, screen projection <laughs> doesn't quite work. It's just, it's just a little obvious. You tell me that's the thing that took bit. you out of the picture. No, just that. That's it. The Everything one that, else the one that looked perfectly. like uh, Pulgasari was either like in a ditch that was about three hundred feet deep, or they were all on a ridge line. You know, walking. It's right. like him from the shoulders up. It's like, yeah. Where, where are like, you guys marching the rest here? Of his yeah, yeah. this working? Yeah. Um, it's. There's, I would say the human characters, there's actually, the story works somewhat. You you can kind of follow the story, but there's a lot of times when you're just focusing on, you're going back and forth between just scenes of, of you know, fighting and the king people, you know, the different royalty type leaders and, um, and then just, I don't know, there's, it's really choppy. I'd yeah, say yeah. is is kind of how it works. Like I can follow the story, but it's just there's a lot of weird cuts where no, you go. It's terribly what? edited. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Where you're just like, oh, and now we're here. Okay, and now we're doing this. And now we're Martin doing this. Even and, made yeah. noises about the music editing. Oh yeah, it oh, God. was so terribly <laughs> done. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it just somebody crossfade. Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't good. For that. <laughs> so the technical aspects not so great. What about you, yeah. Brian? Uh, well, they built that foot, and by God, they were going to use that <laughs> foot. Uh, yeah. They, they, they kept, uh, yeah. kept coming back around for reasons to show people next to that awful looking foot, which I <laughs> assume wasn't Toho actually because it dealt with the actors and stuff. Cause I know they were sequestered from the rest of the, even from Shin Sang Ok, they barely had any contact with the film, the director. So I know that was a completely like separate, separate entity, but yeah. really interesting. Yeah. They barely ever spoke to the director. Actually. So you mentioned the foot. The one thing that I was kind of hoping both times I watched this movie, I was kind of hoping would happen is when the kid goes up to say, Hey, Pogasari, you know, why are you laying down or whatever? After he had been, uh, you know, set on fire and stuff, he, he went, Oh, he pulled his hand back real fast. Like Pogasari is hurting him somehow. Yeah. And I was just like, wouldn't it be cool if just the fact that he was in the fire, like turned him into a more iron creature and his scales all of a sudden were sharp and, and deadly. And yeah. then they never said anything about that. That's, so. that's I what I thought, thought it was going to morph way, it, right? Yeah. 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 Anyway. yeah. I yeah. thought that too. I guess my big uh, negative takeaway from this entire film is just that it's, it's a film that borrows elements from other films. It's sort of a mess. And, I can't, I can't ask for something better because of the circumstances that it was made. So, uh, if that's my negative thing to say about it, I mean, I'm not going to give it a good rating at the end of the day, but yeah, it was enjoyable kaiju fare for me. So, uh, and I guess that really just sort of takes me into final thoughts too. That's sort of my takeaway is that sure, this film isn't you know, a masterpiece. It doesn't make me go, oh man, why hasn't North Korea made more films? <laughs> it just makes me say, yeah, you know, it's a kaiju film. And the fact that they brought on Toho people to do it, even though they were under uh, duress, <laughs> like it sort of really solidifies it into the kaiju camp for me. And, uh, and I'm okay with it. Although I'm not okay with the terrible conditions that were being placed on the people who made this film. Yeah. <laughs> for on the record there. <laughs> what about you, Martin? What are your final thoughts on Pulgasari? My my mind is just absolutely exploding. So uh 
one of the things that I'm going to do is I'm actually on, on my little show that I've been doing. I want to go and talk about this thing now. Oh, okay, cool. And, and I'm going to, I want to like set it up. I want to talk about it on my Facebook as well and tell people, even if you're not a, a Kaiju fan, Godzilla fan, watch this film, go get the book, go read all of the stuff you can on the internet, like totally go Brian and Rachel cook on this information, <laughs> have a bunch of friends over, watch this crazy thing and then have drinks and talk about this thing in the exact same way, because this whole experience is just amazing. <laughs> And I, like all my film friends, all I want to do is just go and tell them, that, find out who already knows about this thing. But it's like, look at what happened. Watch this thing. And here's the history behind it. Uh, yeah. It's just, yeah. <laughs> there have been several movies over the course of this podcast and the discussions where we've said the behind the scenes story is more interesting than the actual film itself. Yeah. And this is, I mean, For not, sure. I mean, not. <laughs> This is the leader of that. <laughs> this is the people's yeah. leader of that particular aspect. Of this can be beat <laughs> that I'm aware of. <laughs> this can't be put into a labor camp. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Rachel, final thoughts from you. Um, it's tough to say. I, I would say that once you dive in, like, I, and if you're anything like Brian and I, and you get interested on the topic. Once you dive into it, it is so incredibly fascinating just to find out not only about the behind the scenes of Polgasari, but then just um, sh the life of Shin Song-uk and Che Eun-hee. But there's so much information out there about North Korea that is fascinating that I just, I would say final thoughts. I know it's I'm getting off topic here a little bit, but... But it's even fascinating to see what's being done to try to make changes in North Korea, to try to bring it to a positive light of mm -hmm. that things are changing. It's going to be slow. It's going to be many, many years and we need a revolution over there, but it's going to be insane before we get there. Um, but there are groups in, the, in that are mostly based in South Korea, but there's also people working from America and, and across the world um, to get information to North Korea to try to ex just exposure to the real world is really the key to break people from brainwashing. And I think that's part of my fascination with North Korea and cults in general is like kind of how I've mentioned in the past, how I, I feel I was, you know, I was raised in a very sheltered religious uh, lifestyle and just exposure to the real world was just amazing to me. And I think that it's really interesting just to learn about what they're doing now, where they're literally slingshotting um, USB, USB drives and iPads and video players um, to over to North Korea across the DMZ and across different borders. Oh, that place um, is the and they're village. Sending, yeah. Yeah. It's the village. Like yes. those folks have no it idea. Is. Yeah, they there. don't know. And, and if the wall went down like right. that, they, they, they would all just like pass out. They couldn't take it. It's just crazy. Yeah. And, and they're sending balloons over there and there's people that are, you know, walking through rivers to bring over garbage bags full of stuff. That's just information to get out there. And it's just, so mind blowing that that's currently happening. Um, but then also there's stuff legally that's happening with, that's why I'm in the middle of that commission of inquiry report. Mm -hmm. Um, that that's kind of the beginning of to eventually find out who are they going to say is responsible, which is really the government and the leaders 
there um, for everything that's going on and to see how to bring those people down, um, which is it's a very fascinating time in history to be learning about that kind of stuff. Because I think in our lifetime, we could see big changes happen. Um, but to learn about the film industry in North Korea, there's not a lot of information out there. I heard there's a documentary being made mm-hmm. about, about Shin um, and Shay, yeah. um, which will be really interesting. But, um, but I say, you know, for the listeners, just once you dive in, it is a fascinating topic. And it's w- that book, a Kim Jong-il production is so it's amazing. Really, and it's, it's an, I, it sounds weird to say, but it's an entertaining read. Mm-hmm. It's not entertaining subject matter because it's, it's outrageous, but right. it is, I, I mean, I find Shin and Chase so heroic for what mm-hmm. they had to go right. through. Um, and that's this, this film represents such, um, a s- iconic piece of like, of, you know, it's so infamous in the kaiju world and to have such a background behind it just really gives you some perspective about like, Godzilla films and how things are made and just even you look at like the like Death Kappa and you know some of the modern kaiju films that are crazy and wacky and bizarre and you're like oh North Korea there you know Kim Jong-il wanted to make his own kaiju movie too but in order to really pull it off and not make it look like Death Kappa he had to <laughs> steal you know had to yeah. kidnap yeah. people to really pull it off and I think that he did in a sense I think he pulled off a pretty decent Godzilla film considering the circumstances. And that's, you know, I say he, yeah, as in Kim Jong-il, but really, I mean, Shin Song-uk pulled it off, but and it's just, yeah, it's, it's amazing when you look at that compared to other kaiju film. No other kaiju film has a history like this. True. True. And so I think that it's just something that the, you know, I think the listeners will enjoy just hearing about and reading the book and reading just look it up online and you find all kinds of articles <laughs> that are just, you know, fascinating. So. All right. So Brian, final thoughts. And uh, with the caveat of if there's anything from the book that you guys think that the listeners need to know about or something that specifically has to do with this Polgasari production, please definitely share. Cause I, I'm fascinated by the whole thing. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I feel like before this book came out, everyone knew the same thing. Everyone knew that right. these director, the director and his uh, wife had been kidnapped. And, uh, I don't know how widely known that the, uh, that it was that the, the Toho crew were. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think in the kaiju community, captured against their will. Yeah. Yeah. You hear about it as kaiju nerds, but yeah, yeah I think a lot of people would be shocked to know that, oh wow, it was those guys too. It was, it was literally Godzilla that was kidnapped. Like, the guy <laughs> kidnapped in the suit. Godzilla. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, they said it couldn't be done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's it's mind blowing to finally see it. I mean, I knew so much about it that it almost seemed pointless to actually even watch the movie because I just know knew so much. But to really actually see it, I I really feel like he was trying to be subversive and say, you know, uh, make a point of saying that the person that saved you has turned on you. And I think he was trying to say that about the regime. And it's, it's impressive to see the movie in that light, if that's what he meant. But at the same time, I also know that that entire year he was planning his escape in Vienna and the movie was not really at the top of his priority list. Cause oh, okay. he, was, he was trying to get out of 
of North Korea and, and was able to do so. So he was he able to get <clears throat> out with his wife? Yes, they okay. both uh, they set up a Austrian division of Shin Films, which was his North Korean film company. And the only reason they did that is they wanted to get far enough away from North Korea to make their escape. And Austria, like Berlin, was cut into sections after World War II. So they hopped from the Soviet side to the U.S. I say hop like it was easy, and it yeah. totally was <laughs> not. It, uh, like it sound harrowing and awful. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they made it back to the United States. He even started his film career for basically the third time because he had a South Korean career and then a North Korean career, and he wanted to make movies in America. And uh, bizarrely, the movie that he can claim is The Three Ninjas. Uh-huh, yeah. I did know about that. <laughs> he created that movie franchise and was so disillusioned by working with Disney on Three Ninjas that he is actually quoted as saying it was easier to work with Kim Jong-il. Oh, my God. Wow. Yeah. Wow. All right. Joss Whedon is a bigger hero than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... That was Rachel that said that, by the way. Martin didn't say that. It was so the history yeah. can be intact. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But... Yeah, amazing, amazing movie production-wise. Uh, it's a must-see just because of how weird it is. So Yeah. All right. So once again, uh, just for the listeners, and I'm going to be including this in the show notes here, the name of the book is called A Kim Jong-il Production, The Extraordinary True Story of a Kidnapped Filmmaker, His Star Actress, and a Young Dictator's Rise to Power. Uh, this is weird. I never really tell people to go buy a book after we watch a movie, <laughs> but, uh, this is, I, I mean, like I said, I started listening to it and I found it fascinating. I just had time management issues. Uh, we got your back. I appreciate yeah. that very much. And I, the fact that I knew that you guys had my back was, was, uh, money in the bank. And I'm really happy about that. <laughs> so, uh, we are going to move along because we did get some other homework in for this film. And, uh, we're going to start things off with pretty much actually the final Kaiju core reading of his homework for the moment. This is Danny. The sole entry into the kaiju genre by North Korea, a land more known for its dodgy politics than its motion picture industry. A film produced by, of all people, a crazy communist dictator who just happened to be a giant monster movie buff. A project only realized that the kidnapping of South Korean director Shin Sang-ok and the <clears throat> importing of Teriyoshi Nakano and Ken Godzilla Satsuma from Japan. Well, if those three points aren't enough to intrigue your average kaiju fan, I don't know what possibly could. Pulgasari, which turns 30 this year, by the way, has perhaps the most fascinating and shady Genesis story of any kaiju film, a story that often overshadows what the film itself has to offer in terms of entertainment and story. Honestly, every time I watch this film, I am shocked by just how damn good it actually is. The directing is solid. The story is exciting and fun to watch, and best of all, the special effects, including the suits, animatronics, and miniature sets, are absolutely stellar. The constantly growing and evolving Pulgasari is beautifully realized through well-made suits, clever use of puppets, giant feet and an animatronic head, and Satsuma-san's usual brilliant acting. There are a few iffy bits, such as the constantly fluctuating pace in a super 80s soundtrack that sounds like it was culled from a cheesy sword and sandals flick and hardly ever fits with what's on screen. But other than that, the film succeeds in being a great giant monster Jidaigeki flick with plenty of action, serious, serious echoes of Daimajin at every turn, and a cast full of guys doing their best Toshiro Mifune impressions. 
One aspect I particularly enjoy is the deployment of primitive rockets and even the genre-staple recently completed super weapon against Pulgasari, sort of a feudal-era SDF strike. It makes the film feel almost like a prequel to the, the entire genre in a strange way. The ending is a unique achievement. It manages to turn the character's th savior, the monster that we've been rooting for, into a threat that could destroy the world, and despite all the good he has done, he must be destroyed through an act of self-sacrifice. Sounds a lot like Gojira, but handled in a completely different way, and very well. I'm sure there's a lot of symbolism in that ending that I'm missing, just as there are messages about communism and other bits of propaganda peppered throughout this film. The funny thing is, all I see is a story of oppressed peasants rising up to bring down an evil power-mad dictator. Apparently Kim Jong-il, a real human monster, didn't understand the concept of irony. But hey, at least he gave us a solid, enjoyable, and unique addition to our favorite genre. All right, big thanks to Danny for sending that in. If you are interested in sending in your own homework via voicemail, make sure you pay attention after we finish the homework, because I'll have information for you. All right, so we are going to go ahead and read the rest of the homework, and I'm going to start things off with Mike. Mike Keller says that the third time's the charm. This is the third movie that he's watched for the Daikaiju discussions that he had not previously seen, and much to his surprise, it is his favorite of that small lot. Mike knew of Pulgasari, but had never heard anything to indicate that it would find it as entertaining as he ultimately did. He knew that some described it as, so bad it's good, or even, so bad it's bad. And Mike thinks John Stewart even made, <laughs> he did. Mike thinks that John Stewart even made it a moment of zen on The Daily Show once. Regardless, Mike believes that some people feel obligated to hate it simply because it was willed into existence by Kim Jong-il. Mike likes to remove these types of stigmas before judging a film on its own merits. After all, Mike says, isn't the battleship Potemkin regarded as one of the best films ever made? And isn't it little more than a thinly dressed propaganda piece for the early Soviet Union? Mike thinks it's also the most overrated movie ever made, but you'll have to track him down in person to travel down that rabbit hole with him. Mike is sure that there are probably some well-made Nazi propaganda films and that Fritz Lang made some of them. And it's really eventually all mute. All mute. <laughs> it's really eventually all moot because Mike is sure that the irony of Kim Jong bringing into existence a film where the enemy is a tyrannical overlord who starves his citizenry to feed his military might was probably completely lost on him. He also says that those who enjoy Asian cinema beyond Japan, let alone giant monsters, will probably enjoy Pulgasari more than those who don't. Stylistically, he finds it similar to the 1960s cinema of Hong Kong, mainland China, and Taiwan. He says that it seems like every other period piece that comes out of Asia is about people fighting back against an evil overlord who is constantly pooping on them. Mike acknowledges that it is somewhat similar to the Daimajin films and the Magic Serpent, and also things like Red Cliff and The Fairy and the Devil. Mike states that if you don't know otherwise, you'd think this was made in the 60s and not 1985. He also thinks that the monster in the special effects footage, handled for the most part by Nakano and Satsuma inside the monster costume, is pretty damned excellent. He also adds that thankfully they weren't kidnapped like director Shen Sang-ok and his wife. Or were they? According, I guess technically they weren't exactly kidnapped like him. Not they weren't put in like camps. They weren't. Yeah, yeah the because the you totally, said they walked off the plane. Yeah, to and then they to, found out. Yeah, yeah, welcome to the production. Okay. So they were under military guard the entire time, and they weren't allowed to contact the outside world. But they weren't. It's not nearly as bad as what Shin had to endure. So, gotcha. 
he also admits that the mats are a little bit off, but eh, mats were a bugbear of all Asian cinema until fairly recently. One thing Mike didn't notice until almost in retrospect, the movie was almost over before he caught on, was that there are a few scant scenes of Pogosari actually wrecking havoc until nearly the end. Most of the time, you just see him marching in front of the farmer's army and the enemy fleeing. Mike thinks that the few times he does go to pummel the miniatures, those are pretty damn cool. But he will not say that he doesn't have problems with it. Someone could almost start a drinking game based on how many times somebody could come, how many times somebody comes running into the, th- into the scene, tears streaming down their face to declare that something horrible is happening, or something has happened to whichever character is unlucky enough to not be in the shot at that time. And Mike thinks that the supposed ass-kicking general that the king hired was an ass in the head, and when he got into the position of being able to control Pulgasari to a certain extent, the wise choice would have been to make the monster turn on the farmer's army. Instead, the general decided to reenact the end of Wicker Man, without even knowing what the monster's tolerance to fire was. Speaking of which, when Pulgasari emerged from the fire unscathed, why was it suddenly free to attack the bad folk that they no longer have what's-her-name as a captive? Obviously not based on subsequent scenes, but why not? For that matter, the baddies had relative ease in capturing whatever good guy the plot called for, be it what's-her-name or that dude they hung. <laughs> none, of these ba- none of these capturings ever happened on camera, and they seemed mysteriously incompetent when it came to the rest of the military prowess. But ultimately, Mike says that he's going to rate this film a couple of notches above a curiosity and into the realm of full-fledged Eastern fantastic cinema artifact. Michael says, boy, Kim Jong-il sure made one of the least decent kaiju films ever made. First off, Pugulsari plays out more as a fairy tale than as a piece of kaiju ega. Only toward the film's climax does it really feel like North Korea was made its own monster to call its own. As all who watched this film and did a little research at the end knew the notorious film dictator of North Korea kidnapped the director and various actors from South Korea to make this film, and even got Teriyoshi Nakano to do the effects. Pugulsari tells the tale of a small village in feudal Korea being plagued by an evil, corrupt, bearded government which also intended to represent capitalism, while the majority of us Americans saw the complete opposite. The government and Pugulsari are not by definition capitalists, but are more representative communists like Kim Jong-il, and as they do trade their villagers for something like more land in exchange for their farm tools, the uncle for the main character, Ami makes, but instead outright ransacks the village and captures and beats all those who resist, all for the importance of the government. Sound familiar? Even the monster himself could represent the communist tyrant due to the fact that the that he acts as the farmer's ultimate weapon in the rebellion at first, but when everything is said and done, all he cares about is finding more metal to munch on which leads to Ami hiding inside the bell to sacrifice herself to kill the monster a la Dr. Sarazawa. Pugulsari is a very generic-looking monster. This is just a mix of Godzilla and Daimajin, with a big pair of buffalo horns similar to those to on Ultraman Taro. Ultra Father? Is that right? What's, I don't yeah. know Ultra Father. Yeah. And now you wouldn't know all those characters. They're, they're all from the Ultraman series. Gotcha. And yeah, Taro has these big horns that go up. Like yes, mm-hmm. kind of looks like the uh, the hats that they wore at the Grand Poobah Lodge. I can't really remember what those look like. But in my brain, that's what's going on. 
Ultraman Taro, Ultra Father, and even the Imagine uh, Momotaros from Cayman Rider Den O. As far as his powers go, Pugulsari can reverse enemy attacks back on their sources just like King Cesar and can even raise his body temperature to boil water in the rivers. His origin is very unbelievable, uh, even from a mythological standpoint, as he is forged from Ami's dying uncle in prison and brought to life by Ami's blood. Is he supposed to be a monster of mass destruction or Pinocchio? He then proceeds to grow from Shobijin size to Pigmon size Yay. and final to Godzilla size. And Finia, I don't, that's, I think that's, <laughs> I think that's a lost in the spelling. <laughs> it is also nice to note that Pugulsari was betrayed by Ken Satsuma, who was fresh off of his first of seven times playing Godzilla the previous year. And he too was forced at gunpoint to be part of the movie. Nakano's effects that go along with Satsuma's stunt work were average. They were not as good as the classic effects done by Eiji Tsuburaya or the revolutionary techniques that would have done, uh, that would be done by Koichi Kawakita years later. The music has a very dreamlike quality because, as Michael stated earlier, this is more of a fairy tale movie than a kaiju aja. But the stupid 1980s synthesizer just killed it all. Pugulsari gets 1.5 out of 5 stars. The message is very unclear and not as powerful as the one we got in the original Godzilla, and the monster is too bland-looking and did not have many special abilities. In short, Kim Jong-il sucks at making a kaiju movie, and this is the reason why Japan should be doing this and not North Korea. And that was Rachel that read that, not Martin, in case any agents are listening to this. <laughs> and my film career is still intact. <laughs> uh, all right. Our voices are almost identical, so they'll never <laughs> gotcha. know. Yeah. Adam recalls, banned for a decade, screamed the cover of ADV videos uh, and this previously unavailable monster movie. But ban from where? Ban from why? The vo- the video box gives no clue as to why the movie was banned at all. If one were to read the history that went into making Pulgasari, one might suspect that they're in for the North Korean version of Godzilla, when in fact Pulgasari has more in common with Dai's Damaijin trilogy. Pulgasari will not inflame the passions of anyone but a tried and true giant monster fan, even those of us with more than our fair share of fondness for this impossibly large creature's for these impossibly large creatures trampling across countrysides will find it a tough sell. There's just too much emphasis on the political aspects of the story. The sheer numbers of bureaucrats toadying to the governor is a sure sign that this flick needs more character development and fewer Machiavellian schemes. Anna gets ridiculously little screen time for a Kenny. Instead, we get the people's heroine who spends too much time crying and even admits at one point, I can't just sit here and cry all the time. As a monster, Pulgasari's development resembles that of a Pokemon, small enough to fit into a Christmas ornament at first, but a couple of pronounced growth spurts over time transform transform him into quite the fighting machine. Pulgasar, I choose you! (laughs) It's a good thing, too. The battle sequences, while impressively filmed, show that the gorillas were using what can only be described as Ewok tactics. Lots of rolling logs and and hurtling boulders which are sometimes painfully obvious in their styrofoamishness. What? Yeah. Oh, I thought it was very realistic. <laughs> they bounced really well. Uh, the same team that made Godzilla 1985 did Pulgasari's special effects, so while the rest of the movie looks rad- rather budget impoverished, the suit is quite good. It almost looks like they reused 
the Godzilla mechanical head and armature for some of Pogasari's close-ups. Did they do that? I don't know, but it did. It, I thought that too. Like the animated eyebrows and stuff yeah. is very it much It would have like, made, it, it would make a lot mm-hmm. of sense if you stripped away that Pogasari and it was basically the, the same, Cybot right? Thing, the Cybot yeah. thing. That'd be interesting. <laughs> Again, not saying that that is the case because we just do we not are know. Theorizing at this point. <laughs> well, Brian read a book on it, so yeah. if we, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe maybe I can't just make things up. Though. Yeah, maybe Nakano's book will come out sometime, and we'll be able to uh, look at it longingly and wish yes. it was translated into English. Yeah. Some of the scenes where mats are used to put Pogasari in the scene with the human actors are really bad, but they aren't, as legend had it, people shot in front of a drive-in screen showing the monster. Disagree. There were definitely rear projection shots used here. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pogasari does operate as a wonderful primer on Korean culture in the U.S. Mail was delivered by horseback with the Pony Express in Korea. They had the Crying Woman Express. Nearly every plot development in Pogasari is delivered by a weeping waif. <laughs> <laughs> Despite the rather lackluster final product, Adam had heard that director Shin Sang-ok cared enough to sue to get his name back on the film when it opened in the South. According to the Korean Herald, he failed. It would also be noted that Shin moved to America a few years back, changed his name to Simon Sheen, and helped produce the American version of Polgasari called Galgameth back in 1996. Polgasari, definitely not the greatest movie ever. (laughs) Scott says that Polgasari is a mediocre kaiju film that has the distinction of having one, if not the most astounding origin stories ever. The film is a classic tale of noble peasants being saved by a supernatural force that is called to action by their sacrifice and virtue. Daimajin did it much better, 20 years earlier. The effects are not bad, especially the final battle where Polgasari trashes the governor's palace. If this was the film, Scott would have already shouted Polgasari a dozen times. My God, that gets annoying, hearing his name screamed over and over by the cast. Anywho. Polgasari! (laughs) Polgasari! 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 That was for you, Scott. Uh, (laughs) Anywho, the real highlight is the backstory. How a young solipsistic dictator in training, Kim Jong-il, kidnapped a prominent director and his wife and forced them to make films that he produced. One wonders if the irony of making a film about starving peasants rising up to overthrow a selfish and corrupt regime a few years before North Korea's disastrous policies called rampant starvation among its own people ever occurred to an older but dubiously wiser Kim Jong-il. The almost Bond villain level of evil and sociopathy exhibited by Kim Jong-il simply to fulfill his own ambition and fantasy of being a movie producer is almost pathetic. Is this what happens when a movie nerd is given ultimate power and has no moral compass? The banality of evil indeed. I think that is absolutely what happens. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I'd say so. Without a doubt. Uh, All right. So Brian remembers seeing the old ADV Polgasari VHS and Suncoast video on a shopping trip with his parents as a kid. And the prominent band for a decade banner on the box made him assume it was some kind of shocking horror movie that his parents wouldn't allow him to watch. So he passed it up after regretting his decision for years. He finally saw the movie on YouTube recently, completely coincidentally to it being announced for a Daikaiju discussion. Brian wonders if it's the reason the movie was shelved for a decade by the Kims is that the story about a young peasant uprising against a cruel tyrant 
could just as easily be about the current tyrant as the previous one, even if the movie is taken at face value as propaganda, with Polgasari represented representing the strength of the great leader fighting for the people, as soon as Fuan and his armies are defeated, Polgasari becomes a, as big or a bigger threat to the peasants than Fuan was. Icky political associations aside, there's something to be said for having all the resources a dictatorship can muster to throw at your kaiju film. The special effects supervised by Nakano are spectacular. Brian thinks they're some of the best in any tokusatsu movie up to that point, and quite a few after. The Pogasari suit, worn by Godzilla himself, Kempichira Satsuma, is particularly impressive. It's a giant monster design, well-executed, fearsome, and powerful-looking. Brian wonders how much outside influence got through to the movie. It's hard to know how much foreign entertainment is distributed and how widely in a society like North Korea. But he imagines that with having a director from a free, or at that time of his capture, at least sort of free-ish, country helming the movie, as well as a Japanese special effects crew, some of the outside influences must have found their way in. The most obvious is how closely the plot of the movie resembles those of the Daimajin films. The other strange thing that really stuck with Brian is that the score sounds nothing like the typical thunderous orchestral monster music of Ifukube. Rather, it sounds much more like the famous Italian grindhouse movie scoring band Goblin. Yes. That is... <laughs> is that true? Absolutely they correct. Did, they did Dawn of the Dead. Yeah. yeah. They've done... Uh, didn't they do... They did Suspiria. Suspiria. Yes. I was going to say yeah. Suspiria, yeah. It would be great to have a legitimate updated home video release of the movie with a documentary about the production and, if it still survives somewhere, the remake that Shin Sang-ok reportedly made after he and his wife escaped North Korea. One other fun side note. Somebody at Marvel Comics is apparently a Pogasari fan in the Invincible Iron Man Annual Number One from 2010, one of the stories is about a man is about the Mandarin kidnapping some foreign filmmakers and forcing them to make a movie where he is the glorious hero fighting the horrible child murdering monster Iron Man, who in the movie is made to look like a giant red and gold metal dragon creature. <laughs> that's oh, cool. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> Chase apologizes for missing the last handful of Daikaiju movies. He felt his interest wane a bit, but he's back now and ready to experience more rubber-suited folks. The movie Pulgasari is an interesting one indeed. It tries to be goofy, serious, harrowing, and not exclusively in that order. Its oddness doesn't stay within those boundaries, however, as the behind-the-scenes are exceedingly bizarre. With the kidnapping of the director by Kim Jong-il, of which everyone must know by now, to make propaganda movies, this one being the last movie directed and aiming at capitalism. A lot of things amaze Chase in this movie, and sometimes not the good amazement, which include, but are not limited to, an old man crafting a perfect stat small statue of Polgasari out of food, how hectic and crazy everything can be in the span of 20 minutes, the fake blood effects, the tiny living Polgasari, the odd and unfitting soundtrack which at some point sounds like someone messing around with the multiple sounds on an electric piano, Anna and Ami forgetting about how terrible their lives are at the prospect of a baby kaiju being in their possession. Hey, Chase would too. Indy hitting a soldier with a sword hard enough to make him flip. And other things he will keep to a minimum for the sake of the co-host vocal cords. Amazement is in abundance with this movie, but overall he gives it a 7.5 out of 10. It may be odd and goofy, but the harrowing scenes of watching an old lady get beat and the childish Pulgasari scaring the soldiers and governor make an unwanted contrast. The child aimed Godzilla's revenge 
and the dark Godzilla 54 are thrown in a blender along with a very scaly and reptilious slash amphibious monster suit a la Gamera to produce a monster movie fit for the oddest of audiences. 7.5 kidnapped film directors out of 10. (laughs) (laughs) All right. For Alex from Australia... Pogasari was one of those films that was on his watch list for a very long time now, but he had never gotten around to picking it up. So thanks to the Daikaiju discussions for finally encouraging him to pop it in the old YouTube playlist and watch it on the bus on his way to work. Obviously, the story behind the film is so much more famous than the movie itself, so Alex suspected that the film would be much less interesting. He's sad to say that he wasn't wrong. Set in feudal Korea and played by actors with distinctly 80s hairdos, with a distinctly 70s-sounding synth-based soundtrack, Polkasari has more in common with the Daimajin films than any Godzilla film. The story consists largely of the stupid and incompetent king and attempting various ways to stop the giant-sized version of Polkasari, mixed with the overly melodramatic scenes of the farmer peasants pleading with either the king's army or Polkasari and sacrificing themselves for the greater good. The film's main attraction lies in its oddness, It's completely unique in the kaiju film landscape and worth at least one view for the insight it gives into the state of filmmaking under an oppressive dictatorship. Alex would challenge any kaiju fan not to raise a smirk at the sincere absurdness of the baby Pulgasari jumping up to take a bite out of the executioner's sword just before it's (laughs) about to land on the farmer's neck. He would love to see a feature about the making of this film, which is probably not possible in the current political climate especially considering what supposedly happened with Sony being hacked by North Korea over the release of the interview. This one is for kaiju film completists only, or the type of fan, like Alex, who enjoys the goofy style of the so-bad-it's-good cinema oddities. Robert had to track down in the deep, dark recesses of the internet and finally found Pugelsari a few years ago. He waited until now to see it, and he's glad he did. Watching other kaiju movies in the meantime helped him appreciate Pugelsari for what it is. This is a fine film and clearly gets its inspiration from other prominent kaiju films. But it also puts in a few details in the plot and the style in which it is filmed that gives Pugelsari a new take on the genre. The movie gets its structure mainly from Gojira and Daimajin. Like Gojira, the monster shows up and the government devises new weapons and and defensive methods to try and stop it. And as in Daimajin, a prayer is made to the idol to make it spring to life and seek justice for the downtrodden. Pugelsari puts a new spin on the genre by clearly couching it in the communistic ideals. The monster is a servant of the peasant class who rise up against the aristocratic leaders and destroy them. And when Pugelsari can no longer serve the people, he is then destroyed. Robert finds that one of the most interesting aspects of the film, probably because he runs... Checking the Gate, a film and religion podcast, which you can find on the ctgpodcast.com, is that one of the ways the bad guys try to defeat Pugelsari is through spiritual means. When force and trickery turn out to be ineffective, they try to perform an exorcism on the kaiju to rid it of the soul of the old man possessing it. The plan seems to work, too, until our heroine decides to take action. In the translation that Robert acquired, she says, I'm tired of sitting around crying all the time. Then she goes to where Pugelsari is trapped and revives him with some of her blood. Religion plays a small part in many kaiju films. Mothra, Megalon, Maijin, all have worshippers praying to them. But with Pugelsari, trying to directly dispatch a monster through a spiritual warfare is definitely a new twist. 
This film is also shot in the style of Korean soap operas. All the drama is just a little too over the top, and the villains literally twirl their mustaches. And as in most other Korean movies Robert has seen, nearly everybody dies in the end, with the most heroic being the self-sacrificing death. In conclusion, Robert really enjoys this film in the way it homages Japanese kaiju movies and puts a Korean twist on them with just a dash of Marxism. Add to that the terrific monster design and well-executed miniatures, and Pugilsari is one great film. All right, so there you go. That's our Daikaiju discussion for Pulgasari. Uh, thanks to everybody here that stopped in and watched this film with me. Thanks to everybody who sent in their homework. It was really great to read. Well, I mean, I guess I would say almost unequivocally, like, the exact same, <laughs> like, responses from everybody. And I think that's, yeah. you know, that's a very telling thing for this film. You know, it's a, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Everybody it's not can a room watch divider. And, and yeah, that's right. <laughs> Nobody's like, oh, I loved it. I hated it. So, uh, all right. So our next film for the Daikaiju discussion is Monster X Strikes Back, Attack the G8 Summit. Uh, <laughs> Wait, what? Sweet. That's a real thing? That's a real thing, man. It's wow. the It's the sequel to the Gilala film. And if oh. you... It, yeah. It's, it's a... <laughs> funny-ish film. It's going to be very interesting. Uh, so what ended up happening a lot of the times <laughs> is I did this big randomization and then I was like, oh, I got to put this movie in. I got to put this movie in. So I would tack them onto the end of the discussion or like just sort of shuffle the last couple of years. And so that's why it's really, we're getting some of the weird kooky ones this year. <laughs> you know? uh, anyway, it, August is a weird month for me. So it's a, uh, it's going to reflect in the podcast schedule wise. What you have to do is turn in your homework before August 21st to have it included in the Daikaiju discussion episode. Uh, now, as I mentioned earlier in the show and earlier in the year, the Kaiju core has been dissolved. Uh, it is the end of July now. And if you're out there listening and you were part of the Kaiju core, of course, we thank you so much for your service. Uh, but now the Kaiju core literally just means the listeners. So if you were, you know, if you're part of that program early you've got that sort of like badge you could say yeah man i took part in this early now all these schlubs who listen to the podcast are going to jump on board you can be the you can be the kaiju court hipster that can be a rank i guess <laughs> but anyway seriously the the cool thing is now we're opening up the voicemail daikaiju discussion so uh, i wanted to give you information grab a pen press pause do what you need to do to get this information because i'm probably not going to put this on the website for a little while, you'll only have to get this to make sure that you're an actual listener to submit your homework for this stuff. Okay, so there are basically three rules you have to remember. Number one, do not go over three minutes. If you go over three minutes, which doesn't sound like a lot of time, your thoughts are going to get cut. Just boom, clip right there at the three-minute mark. Secondly, don't swear. We have that rule here on the podcast. Very rarely do we get outside of that, especially during a discussion. So don't swear. I don't want to have to bleep you. And I will if I have to. Uh, number three, try and have your talking points hammered out before you even place the call. It's going to be very easy on you as you spout your information into the phone. And it's going to be better in the long run for the program. And we just want this to be a success. So here's the deal. If you want to send in an MP3 file, if you have the ability to do so, you can send in uh, an MP3 to controller at kaijucast.com. That is my email address. Make sure you put in, you know, this is the homework for whatever movie that is. 
and then the other thing is if you want to actually call it in, we do have a voicemail line that is 786-505-2458. And uh, the same deadlines do apply. So make sure if you want to do that, if you want to be one of the first people to send in your audio homework for the Gilala film, <laughs> you know, Attack the G8 Summit, make sure you do that before August 21st. There you go. I'm excited. I'm really mm-hmm. excited to hear who submits their homework now that they have the ability to do so. There's a last thing I want to do before we move into the next segment on this podcast. There are a few corrections. Mike Keller pointed out that uh, during the Big Man Japan Daikaiju discussion, Ultraman was referred to several times as Sentai. Uh, I was wrong about that. <laughs> that is not Sentai. He is a hero. Uh, he kind of could be Henshin, I think, because I know that means change. Uh, but basically, he thought that we were over the brief period of American fandom misinformation in the 90s where some people thought that Sentai was synonymous with superhero. It is not. Sentai means team or task force. Power Rangers is a Sentai show. It was based on the Japanese Sentai show Zuranga and all of the Super Sentai shows that followed it. For all intents and purposes, the first Sentai show was Go Ranger. Uh, animated examples such as Gatchaman preceded it, and other anime examples would include things like Voltron. Ultraman is not Sentai. Kamen Rider is not Sentai. Metal heroes such as Space Sheriff Gavan are not Sentai. There is no team. There is no Sentai. Thank you for the correction. Mm. I just am not into that stuff. So I, yeah, I didn't I, know that either. Yeah. I didn't know. Yeah. Uh, and then point number two, it had been mentioned earlier that uh, Pogasari was not commercially available in the U.S., Maybe true right now, but it was obviously, as we've mentioned already in this podcast, it was originally released by AD Vision in San Antonio, Texas. Now, here's the weird thing for me. When I was, when this movie would have come out, I would have been at the tail end of working at the website that was basically like a competition for Amazon at the time. Technically, Amazon hadn't started selling movies yet, but uh, cinemazone.com is where I worked and they had uh, uh, a deal with. Oh man, I can't remember the name of the company. There's a company that distributes movies, right? So if you are a studio, you send your information to this company and they buy tons of your stuff and then they ship it out to all the different stores and stuff. So it's almost like Diamond Comics, right? So how they deal with like distribution and so forth. So this distribution company, uh, we used to get sheet sell sheets from them all the time. And I remember seeing the Daimajin trilogy come out on VHS. And I was like, Oh, I need you to order this for me. Cause I've never seen these movies and I need them in my life. Like it was <laughs> absolutely had to have them. So actually Daimajin is one of the movie sets that I have like so many versions of right now. It's <laughs> ridiculous. Uh, but yeah, so I'm surprised that I don't remember Pogasari coming out, not saying that that's an excuse for me, not remembering that it, it had actually been legitimately released. I don't have that VHS tape. I don't, I might have a way to watch VHS tapes. But anyway, there you go. That's the correction. And we're going to move on to our very next and very last segment for this episode. Pickle Ginger. Oh, yeah. Who's ready for Pickle Ginger? I am. Me. Oh, man. Oh, man. <laughs> Martin's. Oh, man. Uh, this, this, I'm all, this is as prepared as I am. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, this, the, you actually are at a disadvantage right now, Martin. I'm, I'm a, uh, just apologizing up front for this because I don't know how much time you spent thinking about the original Gojira or the Americanized version, Godzilla King of the Monsters. But this pickle ginger was sent in by John Capiello and pretty much just features 
trivia about the original Godzilla film and its American reboot ish, whatever you want to call there. No, that's version. fine. Okay. I, 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 I don't think I don't think I've seen the American reboot actually. I think I've the only seen the Raymond Japanese. Burr, yeah. yeah the Interesting. Cut. All right. Yeah. All right. So I well. might be at a disadvantage as well. <laughs> we'll see. Add another, <laughs> yeah. another imaginary notch in the belt for Brian. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Question number one. In Godzilla, King of the Monsters, where was foreign correspondent for United World News, Steve Martin, heading for assignment when he stopped over in Tokyo? Russia. No. China. No. Taiwan. I don't know. <laughs> Cairo. Oh, Cairo. 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 That would my wife's going to hate be me. low on my list. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in Gojira, the 1954 film, what were the names of the first two ships destroyed by Gojira? Oh. Was Lucky Dragon one of them? No, no. <laughs> Lucky, yeah, Lucky Dragon number three. Any, any guesses? Mm-hmm. It's uh, going to be different Japanese the names. Nina Something and the Pinta. Naru. Yeah, it's going to have Maru. <laughs> I'm going to give I'm gonna give Brian a, a quarter of a point for that. I don't deserve that. The Eiko Maru and the Bingo Maru. Oh. Question number three. What hotel was Steve Martin staying in when in Japan? I've, I've hardly ever watched Godzilla King and the Monsters, man. I, uh, I'm at a bad disadvantage here. No, I, I think seriously, hotel. this is, you know, sometimes I look at the questions and I'm like, these are not going to go over very the well. Renaissance <laughs> in the Renaissance in Comfort in the Crown Plaza. <laughs> Somebody pulled out their Blu-rays and they're like, all right, anything that was on screen for less than four frames gets in. Gets John might, have, he might know this he, stuff. He might have, he might yeah. know that, you know, he might have that level of, of detail down. So oh, yeah. uh, anyway, the answer to the question is the Imperial. Oh. Question number four. So far, the so far we're not doing so Brian well. Brian has a quarter of a point, and the rest yeah, of us have done. I'm, I'm calling that neck and neck. Sorry, uh, yeah. Just, uh, yeah. Yeah. let's do that. It's gonna be a photo finish, folks. <laughs> and Godzilla, King of the Monsters, Steve Martin spends most of his scenes with security officer Tomo Iwanaga. What is the last name of the actor who played security officer Tomo Iwanaga? Tomo Iwanaga. Iwanaga. <laughs> What? That's right. No. Yes. Yes. Yeah, you got it right. Yes. I was hoping it was. <laughs> his last name is, his full name is Frank Iwanaga. So All there you right. go. You're Rachel winning. has a point. Winning. Rachel winning. is now winning. I'm winning. I'm winning. <laughs> so now the chips are all down. That's not what that says. The cards are on the table. Right. I don't They're, play poker. We're winning. I'm winning. <laughs> it's all that matters. The cows have come home to roost. Let's do this. <laughs> Oh my gosh, this is really good. If anybody gets this, you're just gonna, I'm just gonna launch over the table and high five you. Martin's ready. Everyone's prepared. (laughs) In Godzilla 2000, how does actor Shiro Sano pay tribute to Dr. Yamane? Does he have an eye patch? No, that's, uh, the wrong guy. That's 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 Sarazawa. I get a point for that one. Does he wear sure. a... Yeah, I'll give you a quarter of a point. No. <laughs> okay. Are you thinking yes. Sarazawa? Say the question again. In Godzilla 2000, how does actor Shiro Sano pay tribute to Dr. Yamane? Mm. All right. I don't know. I'm just going to tell either. you. No, it's okay. Uh, he tucked his loose tie back into his jacket. Wow. Oh, okay. That's wow. cool. All right. I'm 
we're gonna go for one more at least. Okay. Okay. Last. You got the win. I'm winning right now, though. I'm winning as we speak. Potentially the last question: What time did Gojira destroy the Waco building? What? Ten thirty p.m. Time. No, not ten thirty p.m. Ten thirty a.m. No. Six p.m. On a scale to one and to one twelve, o'clock. I would say you're actually pretty close. Yeah, I was right twice a day. What was the last thing you said? <laughs> last thing I said, yeah. one p.m., two p.m. Brian just is not guessing. He's like, 12 I don't know it. I don't know. Eleven p.m. According oh, to wow, you were the closest. Wow. That's why I said you're the closest. Is that worth yeah. a quarter of a point? Because I could tie for second. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I'll allow it. <laughs> How about this? <laughs> this last, this is the winning. last question. This Still is the winning. last question. I will accept a first or last name for this. Okay. Ooh. Steve Martin sends a telegram to someone at the United World News in Chicago and later speaks to that character by phone. What was that character's name? Tom. Dave. But <laughs> like how Brian is actively trying to remember it, and everybody's just like Jim, Jason, Carl, Albert. Uh, I can't, I can't place it. I can definitely hear like the piece Kim. of dialogue, but George. Okay, yeah, George. I'm not gonna get that. I that's what it was. Actually, Man. I think that might have been the only one that I would have gotten, wow. and and that is of course with the caveat that he would accept either the last name or the first What's name. What's the last name? Lawrence. Hmm. Lawrence. No George one guessed Lawrence, Lawrence either. No. So, yeah. All right. Well, Rachel yeah. is our big yes! winner, yeah. I guess. I nice work. <laughs> All right. So, uh, the, the thing that I'm going to do, I can't remember if I mentioned at the beginning of the show, because we've been recording for quite some time now, is we're actually going to break this up into two episodes. So, we're going to stop recording. I'm going to play one final song, and then we'll be right back with the news. So, the last thing we're going to play is actually a song that Robert Wright Stasco sent to me. When one of the listeners, Stephen Schilling, was submitting panel ideas for G-Fest, he basically got together a bunch of stingers and in one panel session arranged the SY3 march. And so this is actually a recording of that panel. So we'll see you very, very soon. Make sure you download episode 148 as well if you want to get the news that we're going to be talking about. Jamata.
then proceeds to grow from Shobinjin size to pigeon size and oh. <laughs> finally to Godzilla size. That's actually okay. So Shobijin is uh-huh. the Mothra twins. Oh, okay. Shobijin. Oh, okay. oh, I got to get that right, not, or I'm going to get not, like some hate. Not, and it's not pigeon; it's pigmon. Oh, pigmon, pigmon oh, size. Pigmon size. I got to get that right too, because yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to get you some hate get on that, that right. one. Oh my god, you that's why. That's that actually right. why I stopped you. Yeah. <laughs> okay, here we go. 